0: Good morning. Welcome to the Christian Church of Estes Park. We're disciples of Jesus that build generational, transformational disciples of Jesus. I'm Pastor Aaron, and I am honored to have you join me today as we continue our series, I Love My Church. And last week we began this series to talk about at Easter how uh, one of the reasons we love the church is because Jesus loves the church. That's why he died and rose again uh, for us. And but that's not the only reason. The next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some of the reasons why we also get to love church, and one of those we're going to talk about today, because the church is alive. Before we get to that, though, of course, we have our memory verse for this series, which is 1 Corinthians 3.17. We started last week, hopefully got a little foothold on that, but it's a big passage, a lot uh, in there that has for us uh, some deep things in there. But hopefully, uh, last week, as you got to memorize and think about it, uh, start to change how we think and understand the really the importance and the value that God has for us as a people. But if not, don't worry. We're going to spend just a couple seconds here today and uh, begin to remind ourselves of this word. So how we're going to do that, just say it along with me. There we go. Three, two, one. God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. 1 Corinthians 3.17. Oh, he sounds so good again. God's temple is sacred, and you together are are that temple first corinthians 3 17 all right let's test ourselves god's temple is sacred and you together are that temple first corinthians 3 17. wow isn't that deep some, some really good stuff in there now uh if you would like to on your connection card that green connection i had perforated on there is a bible memory verse card so you could take that along with you throughout the week remind yourself of this wonderful truth uh, but don't just memorize it. Obviously, I'm going to give you some things to think about today uh, as to how that applies into your life. But really think about how God's Word is true and uh, that particular profound truth that, that you are God's temple, are we together are God's temple. Now, we talked about today that our, one of the reasons we love our church is that it is alive. Uh, but the church isn't just alive. It's not the only reason I love our church. But it's that it's life-giving, that uh, this is a place that life is found. Now in a, a previous uh, career before I was blessed enough to become your pastor I was an electrician and uh, so I worked with electricity a lot and we would also talk about like live wires and things when electricity was flowing through it and we had these little devices that you probably have in your home and they're called breakers if, if you ever had to use one of those you know it's like if you have a dead circuit yeah, you know, one of the first things you do is you check to see if the breaker there. Because what the breaker does is it breaks the, the line the power coming in from your house from the power company and it breaks it so that way if like if you have a short or something like that, it doesn't burn down your house, right? And so it cuts off the the, the power and so that circuit is dead. It doesn't matter what you have plugged in, then it's dead. Right? And I find that oftentimes we talk about living and dead things in our life. There's a lot to that. Now Jesus talked about how he is the, the life, right? He is the vine, we are the branches. Apart from him, we can't do anything. It's kind of like if you have your toaster plugged into a wall with a dead circuit and it's not gonna do anything. Well, here's the thing we find in this world, that our world has a problem. Our world is a, is a dead place, really, because it has a broken relationship between us and God, right? There is God and he has life and he's connected us to him, right? And the whole creation was meant to work and it's supposed to work well. And then we broke that relationship through our sin, through uh, our rebellion against God. But it wasn't just humanity that broke that. Each one of us in our own lives has broken that relationship, haven't we? And when we break that relationship with God, when we've sinned, when we violate it, we, we, it's like that, that breaker shuts down. All of a sudden, we lose the life of God. And what does that look like? Well, in our society, it looks a whole lot like hatred and chaos and uh, all the frustrating things that we find there and all the brokenness that we see. It looks like, um, well, the world that we see. It looks like the nightly news. And we get enough of that out there, don't we? One of the reasons I love church is that church is a different kind of place, it's a different type of community. This is a place where that brokenness has been mended. And this is a place that is life, and we can connect to that life, and we can find real living. oftentimes people in the world, they try to solve the death in this world through all kinds of other means, and we've seen it this last year, haven't we? Uh, We try to throw money at our problems, like that's gonna make really our issues go away, but our problem's not an economic problem. The, The problem that we have in the world is not ultimately economic. There's not enough money in the world to solve the brokenness in our souls. It's, it's not a, a societal problem. It's not like we can just have the right programs in our, our culture society that will somehow fix it. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that, it's not a technological problem that we can fix with better microphones, right? It's not a political problem that we can somehow solve with maybe having the right kind of, of people in office. Right? We have all different kinds of kings and people throughout history, and humanity continues to suffer this spiritual problem and so we find that to reconnect with God there's a better way there's a deeper solution and we talked about last week how what the church is the temple right and the purpose of the temple was not that that God could be with people because he's everywhere the purpose of the temple was a place for people to come to God and that he made us now his temple that, that, that we are the evidence and the proof and the place where, where a broken world, a dead world, can reconnect to God. We're a place of life, and we are alive. And in fact, I want to you to, if you have your Bibles, turn them with me to Matthew chapter 16. It's one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it's a place that, uh, it's, it's got a great story to it. In Matthew 16, Jesus takes his disciples to the northern part of the kingdom, right? He's all the way up, at the kind of northern part of Israel, getting close to Mount Hermon, right on the foot of, uh, of that. And there's a, um, a place there that uh, there's a... It was a, basically a religious mega complex, right? It was there. They had a, uh, a massive amount of temples that were there. And one of the most profound ones, what was all built around was to, to this god Pan, who was the god of the underworld. And the reason that they built this temple to Pan at this place was because there behind where the temple was, there's this big old nasty-looking cave, right? And there's all garden all around it. And this, and uh, and in that cave, there was like poisonous gases and stuff would kind of come up and, in there. And if anything went into that cave, it was gone, like it would just disappear forever. And what they would often do is they would take a a, a sacrifice, a living person, and throw them into the water of that cave because there's a bunch of water. that's right there, and. If the person disappeared, then he was taken to the afterlife and the, and the sacrifice was accepted. And if they found him floating downstream later on, well, then, uh-oh, right? Something bad happened, I guess. But this was a place that the people of the world, the ancient world, tried to solve the brokenness that they all had inside through a religious solution, right? Right? and we're trying desperately to do that, and spending all kinds of money, and even doing things like sacrificing humans, and all of that. And Jesus takes his disciples up there. It's a place called Caesarea Philippi, right? And he takes them not into that area, because the Jewish people wouldn't typically go there, because there was so much pagan worship, and all that other kind of bad stuff. He took them to a hill, and he's looking down on this massive religious mega-complex, right, With, with... People from all over the world coming there to pay homage and to, to worship these idols. And if you go there today, you get to see some of them carved in the side of the rock and all that. It's, it was crazy. And he takes them there to ask them this question. It's in verse 13. It says, when Jesus reached the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Which is a profound question. And it's one that trips a lot of us up. But really, if we want to find why we have life, we have to answer this question first. Who is Jesus? Right? And in verse 14, you get the, salute, the answer to that, where other people were saying who Jesus is. And so the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Right? Many people, when they saw Jesus and his testimony, his teaching and all of this, they looked at him and they said, he is a religious solution, much like Caesarea Philippi, right? Much like all these things, that, that he's somehow going to give us the right kind of teaching like a prophet. He's going to straighten our lives out if we can just hear it and understand it and all of these things. And that's, that's really what they thought he was. But Jesus presses him a further, and he's like, all right, that's maybe what other people might think of me when they see who I am. But then he says, but what about you? He asks, who do you say I am? And this is the most profound question that will ever be asked any one of us. Because our answer to this question determines our eternity, which is really profound. And even though everybody else was thinking that Jesus might just be another prophet, some kind of religious guy, a good moral teacher, his disciples saw something different. And therefore, we read in verse 16, it says, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of, get this, the living god. Now this is the most amazing answer that we will ever see In fact we're going to Jesus comes back to this particular answer but the messiah that means the one that's going to save us and most of us didn't grow up Jewish and so we didn't understand the concept of messiah but this is the one that that was God's chosen anointed purpose was going to come and to save his people. Jesus is a savior. But he's not just savior. He's God the Son. But he's not just the son of any God, the son of the living God. And if you look down from that hilltop on the Caesarea of Philippi, you could see all kinds of beautiful, tro- like these temples and statues to all of these dead gods who did nothing., who, who were there offering religious solutions that didn't solve any problem. In their midst was God himself, alive. And and Jesus responds to that, that profound answer. In in verses 17 and 18, he says this, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Something profound in this is that His disciples could have got it wrong, right? If uh, Jesus said, you know, who do you say I am? And they're like, well, you're the Messiah and you're God. If uh, Jesus is a really good Jewish person and he's not God, he would say, Simon, you're crazy, right? Back that that truck up just a little, or that uh, cart, I guess, back then. Back it up right? That's going too far because I'm not. But Jesus didn't. He accepted the title. He accepted the identity. He also claimed authority. And we have to do something with that. As Christians, as, as humans, we have to do something with that. See, oftentimes people in our world, and you've heard it taught, uh, that, that people have said that Jesus is a good moral teacher. Have you heard that? I've heard it said that Jesus was a good guy, but, but misunderstood. I've heard that a lot too, right? But here's the deal. Jesus' own words, he couldn't be that. In fact, uh, there's a great theologian, C.S. Lewis, put it together. He called it a trilemma. It's like there's three different things. There's got to be one of the three. If Jesus wasn't God, and he was just this religious person, a prophet, a teacher, whatever, and his disciples said, you're God, and he said, yes, I am, and accepted worship like God would and claimed that he was God. But if he wasn't really God and he did that, well, there's something not right about him. The first thing that could be right about him is he might just be crazy. I mean, we see people in our world who have a Messiah complex. That happens, and our heart goes out to them. Could you imagine how hard that would be, right, to, to not be in your rational mind? And it, it is possible that Jesus was just crazy. But here's the issue with that. Is anything that Jesus taught the writings of a crazy man? I mean, his teachings have formed the the foundation for our our systems of ethics and thought and society for the last 2,000 years. Does that sound crazy? That the people in Jesus' lifetime, like if somebody claims that they're God, like they just show up and they're like, hey, I'm God. You know what most of our, our reactions would be? We should take a ride down to the hospital. Most of us wouldn't give our lives to follow them, right? Because that's probably not the only area in their life that they're irrational. It would be evidenced everywhere else, wouldn't it? And it wouldn't take long for people, there's a sniff, sniff test of, of being you know, in your sane mind. And if you don't pass that, we as humans are really good at picking that up. And it's almost impossible, it takes too much faith for me to believe that Jesus was a crazy man. And also was able to have this following, to have people come in to, to serve him and like he did. So there's the other question. If he's not crazy, if he knows he's not God and still says he is, then he's wicked. He's a sociopath, because Jesus, in his own words, said, "If you follow me, you're following me to your own death." That's what he told his disciples right? You give up everything. Take up your cross daily and follow me, right? If he knew he wasn't God and demanded this, he would be the worst form of narcissist that has ever existed. I mean, can you imagine how evil a guy like that would be? But would an evil man that's a narcissist, a sociopath, would he lay down his life for his enemies? Would he give teachings that would say, love those who hate you? Would he himself, if he was a sociopathic narcissist, would he, when he was being crucified for crimes he didn't commit, would he say, Father, forgive them, they don't get what they're doing? Nothing about Jesus that has been recorded or anything that any of his followers that have taught after him shows that he is in any way selfish, narcissistic, to the point that even people who don't worship Jesus to this day look back at him not as some kind of crazy evil man, but as a good teacher. But if he wasn't God, he couldn't be good. He'd either be crazy or wicked. But then, of course, there's a third option. What if he is God? What if Jesus really is God? What if he really is the Messiah? What if he's the evidence that God has not abandoned us? What if he was the down payment, the deposit of our salvation? What if he was life coming into a dead world? What then? Well, the evidence is pretty strong for that, isn't it? I'm so grateful that God didn't give us a blind faith. It's faith, but it's not blind. And when God put on flesh, he did things that only God can do. The first thing is he fulfilled over 300 prophecies written hundreds of years before he even showed up. Crazy details to to the nature of his birth, the, the nature of his life and ministry, the nature of his death and resurrection. It's amazing what he did. And a lot of those things outside of his control. But he didn't just do that. He Healed people from sickness and the worst sickness. He healed some people from death, and one guy, four days dead. That's pretty dead. He didn't just heal people from sickness and death. He cast out demons. He, everyone was like, "Wow, that's clearly a demon possessed person," and he cast it out without even like, you know, sweating. It's crazy. He fed people with tiny amounts of food, like gave. Thousands of people meals with with just a fish sandwich. God walked, Jesus walked on water. You try that if it's not frozen. And it wasn't frozen. He calmed a storm while at sea. Just be like, be quiet. Jesus did things that only God can do to prove to us he is only, he is God. He's not just a man. And the evidence was there. But I think the biggest thing is he didn't just do the miracles he did something even bigger after he died he rose again and he didn't just rise again in secret right he didn't just show up to like some guy in a closet or or like through a shadow or or show up in a mirror or something like that and said hey i'm here he didn't do that he showed up amongst all of them and walked around in that very same city very publicly after they executed him very publicly like hey i'm back And thousands of people got to see him. Which is why the church grew in that very same city only a month after they executed him. It's why the very people who shouted crucify him a month later were coming being baptized in the mikvahs right below the temple. It's amazing, isn't it? And Jesus says to his disciples, this, what you told me, Peter, is absolutely true. Now, I grew up in a, in, a, in a tradition that misunderstood this particular thing, where it says, your name is Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the tradition that I was brought up in was that, that, that Peter is that rock, because Peter means little rock, but that's not what Jesus is saying. It, he says, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, right, son of Jonah, this is who you are, right? That that what you have, this, what you just said, that I am the Messiah, I am God. What you just said, that is from God. And he says, you're a little rock, Peter, right? And you get this. But on this rock, what you just said, that's what I'm going to build my church on. so The church is built upon the gospel. It is built upon this amazing truth. There's, there's something we talk about, what are the essentials of faith? What is something that everybody in heaven has that nobody in hell has? Is this. They are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. There is nobody in hell who has accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and there is no one in heaven who is there who hasn't accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, who is there by God's grace simply because, and they received it by faith. Isn't that awesome? But with that faith is life. And that's more, I'm going to say just four things about why our church has life because of this, because God is with us. He's the God of life, and he's here, and there's a... and. And this is one of the reasons why we can say that we love church, because our church lives. And the first one is that our church, our founder, is the resurrected Lord Jesus. You can learn a lot about an institution by its founder, can't you? And we love looking at the founders of organizations. Think about like Henry Ford. Right? We, we talk about him, Paragon, or how about Sam Walton and the whole, uh, you know, we have Walmart and Sam's and all that kind of stuff, or Steve Jobs with our iPhones and our Macs and all those things, the big companies that these guys built, or, or maybe more recently Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, right? We, we look to these guys who started these organizations, and the organizations reflect a lot of who they are. Our founder, the founder of the church, is God, the risen living God. That should tell us something about the nature of the church. We are a living institution. That's pretty profound, isn't it? it an amazing place that Jesus came that we would have life? In fact, in John 10, that's exactly what Jesus says. He says, I have come that they, that's you and me, may have life. And how much life? Little tiny bits of life just to get you along? No. Have it to the full. We have been reconnected with God. That's why he came. Isn't that so good? Isn't this the most amazing thing? That One of the reasons we love church is that church is where God is connected back to his people. He came to give us life. And he's made us a living thing. A life-giving thing. Because we're with him. This world was broken. Our relationship with us was broken. We were dead. So God came to us. He fixed the brokenness. And he founded the church. His temple that this world has a place, an access point to come back to him and to come back online to be alive again. That's why I love church. That's why I love being here. I love being with you. Life is among us and life happens here. Not only is our church a place that's founded by like God, the living Savior, but also our foundation is eternally solid. Jesus said he's going to build his church on what? It wasn't Peter. It was Peter's confession. That Jesus is the Messiah, son of the living God, and that will never change. See, churches that are founded on that foundation and believe that will never fall apart. That's why 2,000 years after Jesus came, the church still exists. Now, there are churches that occasionally, they get off track, and they start teaching things like salvation is Jesus plus something, or they say that Jesus isn't really necessary for salvation or anything like that. You know what happens to those churches? They get sick and they die. Every time. But the church is still here. But Jesus didn't just say that that he was going to just, you know, we would be alive. We got this foundation. Look what he says here, verse 18. If you're back in your Bible, this is is a a powerful, wonderful thing. Jesus said to Peter, he says, I tell you that you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Get that second part. The gates of Hades aren't going to overcome it. Now think about when Jesus was saying this. He was standing on a hilltop outside of Caesarea Philippi, looking down on a temple which was in front of the gates of hell. And Jesus has the audacity to say to his 12 little disciples up on that mountaintop, look at that big mega complex with all those thousands of people and the millions of dollars that are there. People are going there and all the fanciest of, of marble and all the things that are there. I tell you what, Peter, that that place is not going to overcome this. And you know what? It didn't. And here's a picture of it, because that's me a couple of years ago outside of Caesarea Philippi. That's the gates of Hades right there. And you know what's profound? Is that when you walk around there, a couple of things. The first one is all those beautiful temples are nothing but ruins. They've all fallen apart, and that just looks like an ugly old cave, doesn't it? But back in the day, man, that was it. If you wanted to be close to God, if you wanted to fix your religious problems, this was the place to go. It's gone. But you know something else is really profound about that? Is that that was a hard picture to take because that place is crowded. And do you know who it's crowded by? Christians. From all over the world who visit there every single day and they're praying every single step. They are walking over the devil's ground and the devil is under their feet. The gates of Hades is under the feet of the church now, right now. It didn't overcome it. It can't. This was the stronghold of the devil, and today it's a tourist attraction. Our God is awesome. That religion is dead, but our God is alive, and the church is alive. And that's why there's the mean face. Because our faith was never meant to be kept inside of some small little building huddled up and afraid. We charge and challenge the devil. Because he has no place over us. He is dead and we are alive. Now I'm going to ask you, if you had a boxing match. And you had a boxer that was there that was really tough and all that kind of stuff. And he looked all mean and nasty but he was dead. Versus a guy who is alive? Who would you put your money on? The church is alive. It's one of the reasons I love it, and it will continue to be alive. And as long as our church is on this foundation, the gospel, and we do not move from it, there is nothing in the world that can remove us. Hell itself will only kneel before us. Isn't that great? The reason I like the church is this, is that our fellowship is open to everyone. Sometimes I like that, sometimes I don't, because this is what it means. God's temple's doors are open to everybody. You see, when Jesus was outside of Caesarea Philippi, the Jewish people didn't even dare to go into that area because it was so pagan and awful, right? You know, pretty much every religion in the world has some kind of bias to some kind of ethnicity or some kind of background or some kind of nationality or something like that, but the church isn't that way. The doors of the kingdom of God are open to anyone and everyone who would simply walk through. And how do you walk through it? Well, you're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter your last name. It doesn't matter if you were a paragon of society or if you were you know, a, a horrible criminal. It doesn't matter anything about you, really. It matters is that Jesus is our Savior and he has come. And anyone and everyone who comes to him will be saved. Now, people like to argue and twist things because that's part of being broken. And I've heard it said so many times. Well, I don't can't be a Christian because you're so you're so exclusive. You know, people have to believe in just your Savior in order to be saved. Well, yeah, but that's not exclusive. See, so here's the deal. Like uh, when you come to my house, you have to come through one door, the front door. Now, anyone can come to my house, right? If you're invited, you can come. And Jesus is a lot nicer than me because he invites everybody. But if you're going to come to my house, can you imagine how ridiculous it would be? He's like, well, I would come to Aaron's house, but I've got to go through the door. Right? That's how stupid people sound when they say the church is exclusive. If you want to come, there is a place for you. There is a place for you. And there is a way in. And it is well lit. It's for everyone. And God made a way. Let's be real. If I built the kingdom, and if you built the kingdom, chances are you wouldn't make such an open door. You'd put a bouncer there. You'd be like the nightclub guys, right? They're like, well, should you really be here? But God doesn't do that. He makes his church available to all. Something else I love about the church is that our focus is generational, transformational discipleship. That's why it's a living thing. We don't exist, to exist. It's not why we're here. It's not like God made us to say, hey, I just want you to make converts. That's why I say it every single Sunday, right? Jesus built the church to be his temple, to be a place of life, to be able to connect, right? We talk about generational discipleship. That's faith that continues on. Sometimes it's through our own families. Sometimes it's through our friends and the people that we know. Sometimes our contacts at work or at school or wherever, that our faith continues to pass on. It lives. That's why we pray for people every single week, at least five Right? We're continuing to to share our faith, and it grows, but it's also a faith that transforms us. See, we don't just have stories of conversion here. We have testimony. We have the story of God at work in my life. And I love how it's testimony, because we don't testify to what we have done. We testify to what we've seen happen. And I've seen God change me. And guess what? I've seen God change a lot of you, too. God transforms our spirits, our character, our nature. He changes us from the inside out to the point that it is undeniable. And we see that happen. That's part of discipleship. In fact, Jesus talks about this discipleship. Matthew 28, it's a Great Commission, right? It tells us what to do. This is our marching orders from our big boss. That's so what he told us to do make disciples. This is what we're about. Not converts, not people just exist on their own, but a living organism. He wants us to grow. And he tells us how to do it. First, we've got to go to people who don't know him yet, which means the church is the temple, but God put his temple in this community so the world can connect with him, which means that after our gathering, what are we doing? We're meeting with people. We're showing them the way to God by how we live and how we talk and how we act and how we love one another. We go our faith is not some quiet thing it's supposed to be kept under a bushel. I don't care what anybody says. Your faith is to be lived out loud in the world, to go. But as we do, we baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we help bring people to faith and, and to have this, this opportunity to join our fellowship. But we don't stop there. And it says, then, to teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. And it's not about doing the good things. It's learning how to follow our new king. To live a new life, a better way, because let's be honest, the way the world teaches us how to live is kind of stupid. The way God teaches us how to live is kind of amazing. And so it transforms us. And so we have a living command. See, I love the church because my church is alive. This is a place where God is, For God is at work, this is where God is working through us and doing amazing, amazing things. I'm so grateful that God brought us and g- has given us the gift of church. Our founder is the and Savior, right? Our fellowship is eternally sol- solid, right? It's open to everyone. And our focus is always gonna be generational, transformational discipleship, just as it's been from the beginning and as it will be until Christ comes back. We love our church. It's a place that gives life. So how about you? How do you apply that? Because it's a truth, but how do you apply that truth? So what? Well, on your connection card, I've given you some so what, some things that maybe you need to do. And the back there, the first thing is maybe you need to memorize 1 Corinthians 3.17. And the reason why is I think a lot of us have been poisoned by the failures of Christians who aren't acting perfect. There have been unhealthy churches. There have been, and a lot of us have been wounded by those. And because we've been wounded by those, sometimes, or we hear stories of people have been wounded by those, we think that somehow God has abandoned the church, but that is not true. God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. And if God loves it, then we need to learn how to love it too. That's going to be a big thing, and that God sees beauty in us. And the world's going to ridicule us, but they ridiculed Jesus, so who cares? Gates of hell's not going to overcome it. So maybe you need to start by 1 Corinthians 3.17 and get an understanding. Don't let the devil lie to you any longer. You are treasured by God, and you have purpose in God. Or maybe what you need to do in addition to that is maybe read Matthew 16. I preached a tiny portion of it. Read the chapter. See what's happening there. In fact, if you want to, read the whole book. It's pretty awesome. You'd see what Jesus did in his life. Maybe what you need to do today is to become a Christian. I mean, part of the process is to be born again. And then we will raise you and help you grow in faith. That's part of what a living church does. But if you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why on earth would you not? He's not crazy. He's not a megalomaniac. He is God, and he's come here to save you. If you've never made that decision, God wants you to be saved by grace through faith. There's nothing you need to do by faith, but he asks us to express our faith by believing him that that's true, even when you have doubts, and you're going to. It, by, by obeying him, that's repentance, and starting to follow him. Not perfectly, but just out of faith. Saying, God, I'm going to learn how to live this new life by identifying with him. That's called confession, saying, all right, he's my savior. I'm with him. I'm, I'm part of this crazy thing. By being baptized, by having that born again, sins washed off, that I'm in the community thing. By being discipled and being part of a great church. By expressing our faith daily in how we live. If you need help taking any of those steps, this is a place to do it. This is the temple. Let's do that with you. So come talk to me after the message. Let me know. Or maybe the thing you need to do is to join our church. Maybe you're here, you're a believer, you're already part of it. You just don't have a healthy church family. Well, now you do. And I invite you to join our membership class. It's going to be on May 2nd. And it's an opportunity for you to come and hear about who we are, how we're structured, what we believe. It's a conversation. It's usually a pretty small class. But I'd love to have you join us in that so you can connect and be part of this great body. Now, hopefully I've given you all something to decide, something to do on your connection card. At the end of the message, along with you, if you have a prayer request, why don't you write that down on there as well? Because I do pray for everyone I know to pray for. So tell me to pray for you, and I'll pray for you. And then at the end of the message, there's on that back wall there, there's that really cool box. And drop your connection card in that box with your tithes, as well as your prayer requests. And uh, make that an offering of yourself to God. I'm gonna have the worship team come up and we're gonna have a song of commitment. Uh, As they get set up, let me pray for us as we set our hearts to what it is that God wants us to, to, to do as we commit to him this week. Let's pray. Father God, I pray a blessing over each one who has come here today. Lord, that the truth of your word would spark joy in their hearts, Father, that we would connect with your life. Father, I pray a blessing over this church that we would not just be a church that exists, but we would be a church that exists standing firmly upon the foundation which you have laid for us, the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Father, I pray from that point, that, that wonderful foundation, you will give each one of us an opportunity to express that out of faithful action, a faithful expression this week whether that's memorizing a a scripture or reading a passage or coming to you for the first time or connecting with this body or maybe even something else. Father, that you would draw us closer to you and closer to each other as you reach this community uh, through the amazing work of your body here. Father, we pray as well for our tithes and our gifts and all the other things that we worship you with, Lord, that as we offer things back to you, that you would magnify them for your kingdom and for your glory, for you alone are worthy. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.